Welcome to the Paperback Show. I'm Ricky Lee Grove, and in this episode, we'll be taking a look at the Film Guide Paperback. More specifically, the Cultography series published by Wallflower Press, an imprint of Columbia University Press, along with the BFI British Film Institute Guide series. In the first half of the show, I'll offer a brief history of the Film Guide Paperback, Cultographies, and BFI. In the second half, We'll bring in our guests, Cody Goodfellow and Kim Vodica, to discuss their Cultography's pick. We will discuss the books themselves as well as the cult movie it's about. So, stay tuned. And after this brief music interlude, and by the way, the music is from freesound.org, a great source for sound effects and music, we will be right back. The golden age of paperbacks was the 40s through the 70s, but that doesn't mean great paperbacks stopped being published after the 70s. Although times have changed, the paperback still continues to evolve. It's a cheap, democratic form of reading that appeals to all level of readers, including the high school and college student. Inexpensive paperback classics have always been appealing to the hard-pressed student with a limited budget. The educational market for paperbacks evolved after World War II because many soldiers used the GI Bill to attend college for free. Plus, the amount of colleges in the U.S. more than doubled in the early 1950s. Publishers New American Library saw this as an opportunity to reprint classics in paperback for a growing number of students who wanted something portable and cheap. It made a lot of sense because so many of the titles were already in the public domain. The Scarlet Letter, Huckleberry Finn, Moby Dick are just a few examples which lowered the production costs. Penguin Books in the UK had started the process of classic paperback reprints, and American publishers soon jumped on the bandwagon. The classics educational paperback market grew and expanded in the 1960s, along with a new subject of interest to readers and students, film studies. Although studies of the film began as early as 1915, the movement really took off in the 1950s. Some of this grew out of the increasingly large amount of foreign films entering the U.S. marketplace. This was due to the decline in the Hollywood studio and the move towards television production. Specialty art house theaters began showing world cinema masterpieces like Seven Samurai, Wild Strawberries, and Truffaut's 400 Blows. Colleges began to include classes in film history and criticism. New film critics began to write about these films, and the idea of the specific film study book was born. Lovers of films, including critics, wanted to know about the background, history, and meanings of their favorite film. BFI, the British Film Institute, Riding the crest of the film study book wave, decided in 1992 to create specific film study books for the 360 key films in the history of cinema and in their archives. The template for the series featured introductions to the specific film, an argument for the film's classic status, discussion of the production and reception history, and an account of its technical and aesthetic importance. Key, though, was the author's personal response to the film. The series was a success and featured authors Simon Callow, Marina Warner, Salman Rushdie, 
who tit the Wizard of Oz BFI, and Greel Marcus, just to name a few. Eventually, the series grew to include 200 titles. The series was published in beautiful trade-sized paperbacks format, a bit larger than the mass-market paperback, featuring a still from the film on the front cover. They were short, 100 to 120 pages, and carefully edited. I remember buying Edward Buscombe's The Searchers, a John Ford film, in 2000, and reading it until the pages fell out. Since then, I've collected well over two dozen titles in the series. The quality is usually quite high. The editorial hand was firm in the production of each book. And the small size of each paperback edition was perfect for the high school or college student, not to mention the cheap price. Today, in that 2022, the BFI series has changed publishers. The classic status of films in the series have expanded to include LGBT and black and cult films, and the cover design has moved towards bold graphic designs. Most importantly, though, the success of the BFI Film Classics series inspired several other publishers to start their own series of specific film study books. My favorite is the Cultography series. Cultographies is, unfortunately, no longer being published. The series was originally published by Columbia University's Wallflower Press in association with the University of Wales, Abersith Wythe, and the University of British Columbia. The series editors were Ernest Mathiges, film studies professor at UBC, and Jamie Sexton, a film professor at Aberth Wythe. Since the focus was on cult cinema, still a grudging subject in film studies, there were books on the Karen Carpenter story, Evil Dead, Danger, Diabolic, Ms. 45, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It appears, according to my research, that there were 13 books published before Wallflower stopped publishing. The books are in mass market style with photos from the film under the cover, similar to the early BFI design, and written primarily by academics and film scholars. Now that doesn't mean that they're not readable by film fans. On the contrary, the editors made sure that there were few, if any, theoretical arguments in the book, and instead, they focused on film's history, critical reception, why the film is considered a cult film, and the aesthetic appeal of the film. In the second part of this podcast, we'll be discussing three books in the cultography series. My choice, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, a Russ Meyer film. Ms. 45 is a choice by Kim Vodica. And Danger Diabolic, chosen by Cody Goodfellow. And our guests, Kim and Cody, will discuss each the book and the film in turn. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with the discussion. By the way, if you have comments or want to say anything or communicate, you can uh, contact me through paperbackshow.com using the contact form. I'm always interested in hearing feedback and suggestions for uh, paperbacks to cover. I'd like to welcome the first of my two guests to this episode of The Paperback Show, Kim Vodica. Thanks for being with us again on the show. You and your partner, Cody Goodfellow, were on our sex novels episode. 
I really enjoyed your comments on that show and your performance and reading from Ori Hits Wild Lovers. What a great job. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Ricky. Sure. Uh, Kim Vodica is the author of four full-length poetry collections, most recently The Elvis Machine, Clash Books 2020, and Dear Ted, a book that I've pre-ordered and am anxious to read. It's by Really Serious Literature 2022. She also writes erotica and her short story, A Dirty Story As You Like It, was published in 2021 as part of the Pocket Erotica series by New Urge Editions. Originally from South Louisiana, she lives in Memphis, Tennessee, with her beloved cat, Lula. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. Um, quickly, the film we're going to be discussing is Ms. 45. It's a 1981 a film by Abel Ferrara. The book was written by Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Ms. Nicholas is a film critic, writer, broadcaster, and editor of the journal Senses of Cinema, which, by the way, is a great uh, website online. She is also currently a researcher at the University of Melbourne, and she wrote the book Revenge Rape, Rape Revenge Films, a critical study which came out in 2011. So my first question for you, Kim, is why did you choose this book amongst all of the others in the cultography series? Well, um, there's a lot of good movies in the series, um, but um, I mean, as soon as I saw that Miss 45 was part of it, I was like, God, like I could talk about that movie for five days straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, I it has a very special place in my heart. Um, and so I was really curious to um, take a deeper dive just because it's had all this meaning for me personally, but I'd never um, you know, really done any research into it like this author of this cultography book um, definitely has. It's an extremely yeah. well-researched, um, well-considered book. But, um, but yeah, that's, so that was the main reason was just because um, I have a, a really... Um, personal connection with the film and uh ever since I first watched it let's see I think it was in 2018 so not even really that long ago and then uh this cultography's book I believe was published in 2017 right right um what when so you saw it in um 2017 did you see it like on a, a dvd or something like that yeah, so um, I have a friend who had the Al or not Alamo, the Draft House, House Films um, Home Entertainment yeah, reissue. Yeah. yeah, and then he also had the uh, Joe Delia soundtrack on LP. Um, so, but yeah, I had never seen it. He had, um, and like kind of like clocked it as something I would enjoy. And I mean, I enjoyed it like I think way more than he ever imagined <laughs> I might. So it was interesting because yeah, I was introduced to this movie, you know, through men slash a man, similarly to how the right. author of the book here, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, says she was introduced to the movie as well by through like um male professors and friends and right. movie yeah, nerd well, friends. Yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting phenomenon that I believe um uh, she discusses in the film or in the book um, about the gendered nature of cult films and how she was introduced it by a man as well. Yes. I thought that was interesting. What was your reaction to Ms. 45? I know you uh, uh, said it affected you deeply. Could, can you be a little more specific than that? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it almost feels like, 
it's like it it speaks a secret language um like it's not the same movie if you're a woman watching it um compared to if you're a man watching it or if you're someone who benefits from patriarchal oppression <laughs> um, yeah 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 so um you know and I, I i agree with the author of the book in terms of like the very act of viewing the movie just feels subversive like it feels like you're almost doing something or enjoying something you're not supposed to which i think can be extended um more generally to um cult film and especially like exploitation film coming to it as a female viewer you know right. because because right. it is a genre that is coded as masculine um you know primarily because it's usually so violent and gory and like women are you know typically considered weak and squeamish and um you know faint of heart and things like that we're we're not considered the natural audience for this type of material so yeah, yeah. so there's this and i had seen exploitation films up to this point and have been a fan for years but um so it was beyond that um about miss 45 i guess for me like the ending of it was particularly impactful i know i know yeah. that ending was just extraordinary i waited um I was going to watch it a week ago. I saw it long, long time ago. And my memories are somewhat dim, but I waited until last night to rewatch it so I could have the excitement of the film with me today. And oh my God, that last scene and the music and the way it's done and her final uh, comeuppance there at the end at, at the hands of another woman when confronted with a strange, weird, gendered male who's male and female and the whole concept of the Halloween party at the end is uh, switching genders is, is just genders is just marvelous. I, I just loved it. Yeah, it, it is super interesting. And I mean, the, you know, the author's main thesis in this book is really about like, you know, how Thana's um, ultimate downfall is that she fails to see beyond like the duality and the gender binary and right, her right. lack of intersectionality which is a you know obviously very very contemporary uh reading of the film but very uh very fascinating um yeah yeah um I um you know my initial viewing of the film I I didn't go that deep um but I was affected by what I viewed as, yeah, like the betrayal of a woman by a woman, um, especially using, you know, like not only like a knife, which is like a phallic symbol, but like holding it at cock point, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like and, st and stabbing her in the back. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, so like for me in terms of initial impact of the movie, um, like, I guess I saw that ending as the way women externalize internalized misogyny and the use of the weaponized male gaze against one another and how it's sort of this perpetuation of our own oppression, like by patriarchal design um, and using, you know, the language of the oppressor or like the implements or both against one another. Um, and then, yeah, like sort of getting this feeling that like the, the patriarchy just can never be destroyed and evil will always win. And yet, so my, my, my initial um, reading of it or viewing of it was, was extremely dark. 
um, and um, more kind of centered around the way women not only betray one another, but are sort of conditioned and programmed to do that by the patriarchy. Um, so, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, for those uh, uh, listeners and viewers who might be a little confused as to the what we're talking about, <laughs> um, <laughs> Ms. 45 is an 81 film uh, that uh, is about a young woman who works in the garment industry and she's mute and uh, uh, passive and on her way home from work uh, with the girls she uh, is raped by a man which strangely enough as the director of the playing a role in the film wearing a mask and while that rape occurs a man breaks into her apartment she gets home and she's raped again um she manages to kill this man uh using i love the domestic uh, use of a, a of iron uh, that she uses in her uh, work to kill him, and this starts a, a process of her changing so that she becomes a serial killer, but a serial killer of men, especially men who are uh, part of all men in her mind are part of the oppressive nature, and she takes the guy's gun who was robbing her at home, and she which is a 45 and she starts shooting people and it changes her personality to the point where her entire look changes. And uh, the film climaxes, I won't spoil it for you, but it climaxes at a Halloween party in which she attends and it goes horribly wrong um, in a very memorable scene. So that's the film. And it was, I think well I already did sort of spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry. well, that's, a, that's okay. The, 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 uh, listener who isn't listening carefully will have missed it so <laughs> but um it, it i like the fact that in this book for, first off i'm really impressed with the fact that cultographies chose this this film they could have easily uh, gone over it and followed all the male gendered stuff and continued down the line with Eraserhead and rocky horror and all of that or death wish they could have done death wish um but they Which is didn't. good, but it's just not as interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, well, it doesn't have that layers of meaning to it. No. But I think that uh, I was I was impressed, and she talks about the fact that there's a sort of assumption that the cult films are failures when they come out. That was the case with the uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Danger Diabolic wasn't that big of a success. And it isn't until later when the film is brought out in a DVD, first DVD, and then reissued in 35 millimeter, that audiences develop for it. She points, she um, throws that idea out the window from his 45 and saying that the critical response was quite good to it. And, and talks about the fact that the, when they were promoting it, their mistake in promoting it was um, that they were promoting it as a grindhouse film. So they paired it with all of these other films that were just terrible. Yeah, it had mm -hmm. a, it was um, released um, or screened primarily in grindhouse cinemas. Yeah. Um, my impression was that the response at first was actually kind of mixed, but that, but that changed not very long after it was released, like into like almost unanimous praise, but yeah, yeah, but still not like, like I think cult films 
almost never have mainstream appeal, at least at first. Um, like over time, a cult film can almost become mainstream in terms of how popular it becomes. Like when you talk about like Rocky Horror, for instance, right, you know, right. that Miss 45 is not quite in that same um, camp in terms of even though it does have um, especially like a really significant uh, female fandom, um, it's nowhere on par with the fandom of something like Rocky Horror. But Yeah, I appreciate it in the book and uh, all three books, the uh, Danger Diabolic, which Cody is going to do, Faster Pussycat, which is what I chose, and Ms. 45, which is what you chose. All of the authors deal with the idea of the cult film and how that film fits into it. Yeah, there's an interesting point this author of the Miss 45 book makes, and she says that cult films are about obsession um, mm. and that they also make their fans obsess. Yes, yes. I thought was an interesting definition of cult film that I hadn't necessarily ever heard phrased that way. But So what do you think um, people who are obsessed with Ms. 45 get out of it? Well, I mean... There's a lot to get out of it. Um, one of your questions in the show notes is, you know, do you think it's a feminist film? And um, forgive me if I'm jumping ahead, but I feel like that's just um, related to what we're what you're saying right now. Sure. No, I get it. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, I think a lot of people are getting therapy out of it. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, though, Um you know, there's this um, thinking about the, um, and we're, I know we're going to talk about uh, Zoe Tamerlis Lund um, more in a minute, um, but she wrote an essay um, called the, the Ship with Eight Sails and 50 Black Cannons. Yeah, yeah. And there's, it's quoted um, at length throughout um, the Miss 45 cultography. Um, but there is a quote that says, I'm going to just quote it right now. The present furor over rape is the work of woman's enemy woman. They strive to turn all women into victims, not fighters, not creators, not sources. But I think that what people, especially, I'm going to say women, but please understand that this can be taken more broadly in terms of like anyone who has been not only sexually assaulted or sexually harassed, or it can extend to anybody who's ever been um, victimized by patriarchal culture, you know? Mm. So yeah. that, yeah. Um, but I, there, and there are some testimonials toward the end of the book, like when um, the, the final chapter of the book deals mostly with um yeah like the film's legacy and impact but um there's one woman um who is quoted as saying miss 45 showed me i don't have to be a victim that being a survivor of sexual assault doesn't doesn't render me this weak fragile or damaged creature no amount of therapy could ever show that to me but a horror movie could <laughs> yeah, i love that yeah that was a yeah. great sentence yeah i i really loved that and i i don't think that necessarily everyone is having that experience um even people you know who have um been victimized in some way but um i do think that you know it it pushes boundaries especially in a time when you know trigger warnings and content warnings are are um you know kind of the the name of the game. Yeah, um, yeah. And I personally, I, I, we don't have to get all into that. I, I don't really agree with that. Um, 
I don't think that it necessarily benefits anyone to, um, you know, kind of um, shelter, yeah, I, shelter I yourself you. or, yeah, or yeah. kind of coddle, coddle the, the mind and the heart in that sort of way. Yeah. Um, but um, another point made toward the end of this book is um, that um, like one of the things that is that people are doing when they're watching this movie is um, kind of um, testing their own boundaries and testing their own triggers, mm-hmm. um, challenging their own fears and self-censorship, yeah. um, how it can be a form of like exposure therapy even. Like I'm sort like I'm scared to watch this, but I'm going to do it. Yeah, like even to score a victory over pain or trauma mm, or yeah. achieving mastery. Like, you know, I think about like repetition compulsion or, you know, something like that. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think you can get a, a lot of things can be gotten out of this movie, but um, when we're going to like kind of talk about it more in terms of being a feminist film and maybe what women slash survivors are getting out of it, I definitely think, um, a lot of people have that type of experience watching this movie. Yeah, I agree. How well do you, did you think uh, the author covered the film? Did, oh, did I you, mean, did you learn anything new about the film? Um, I well, I think she covered it astonishingly well. Um, the The second chapter of the book is pretty much a shot for shot reading of the movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I it like is that. it is detailed and supported by you know not only popular source material but academic um, articles and books and things and yes you know this author is is an academic and I mean it's just so well researched it's also well supported by um, interviews with you know everybody involved in the making of the movie um, so I mean it's it's extremely thorough um, it's extremely deep you know um, and yeah, I learned a lot about the movie, especially the making of it, which I hadn't really known much at all about. Yeah, I'm not, um, I was really interested in the fact that the the script quotation marks was really a 36 page sort of outline. Yes, it was very with, thin and cold is what right. they were saying. Yeah. And, and that and that there was a lot of improvisation in creating the film, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Um, I, you know, there's also a point made that like a lot of directors actually prefer to work with like a script that's more kind of skeletal, um, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. and that's maybe like um, more of a blank slate or blank canvas, um, because they were comparing that to the way um, Zoe Tamerlis Lund writes, because she actually wrote Bad Lieutenant, um, which is something I learned from this book. Um, I, I knew she was involved, but like, there are quotes in the Miss 45 book saying that like she claims she single-handedly wrote Bad Lieutenant. And I tend yeah, to yeah. Tend, tend to believe that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But she apparently would write these like really, really, really detailed scripts that like don't leave a lot of room for the director to insert himself. And apparently mm. she encountered some issues with with ego stuff because of that. But yeah, which doesn't surprise me. But but yeah, um I <laughs> learned a ton about it um yeah this the script was really really lean and she um you know in my opinion she makes the movie um, i think she does too and i think that the author of the book um 
Miss uh, Nicholas, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, makes that point as well in the yes. book, which I think, which, and then it was fascinating for me because I had read the book a, a couple of weeks ago and it was fresh on my mind because I was making notes. And so when I watched the film, it was almost like she was a little critic inside of my head uh, <laughs> pointing out, see, see, that's the point I talked about in the book there. Yeah. It's, it, go ahead. Oh, no, no. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, I, I had a similar experience like after, watching the movie after reading this book, it was like, wow, like just the level of detail under analysis. And it's like, yeah. I, I didn't even see that when I, you know, when I, yeah. when I saw it first, you know, yeah. like just really um, amazing attention to detail. And I'm um, just, um, so well, I think just, good yeah. movies, um, really well-made movies like this one uh, um, stand up to repeated viewings Oh, and yeah. they don't they did they, they don't give away all of their secrets right from the beginning. So as cult films, especially because they're transgressive, uh, they have layers of meaning, performances are different styles is all unusual and sometimes abstract, like in say Eraserhead uh, or films by Jodorowsky. And so I think repeated viewings um, make them ideal for a topic for a, a, a cult book or yeah. a film film study well, especially like this one is it's hard to know how to take miss 45 because i mean not, not only is it a cult film but i mean it's an exploitation film yes. and despite how critics you know some critics have taken like great pains to elevate it completely out of the exploitation yeah, yeah. genre it is still straight up an exploitation oh film, yeah you know? no question about that yeah, has, especially if you you've been watching uh, exploitation films for a while like you and i both have yeah um now it does make the exploitation film much more complex um there, as um, many of the authors quoted in the cultography book um, point out, it's not as gratuitous. It's not as sensationalized. It's not as sleazy. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, there are two rapes within the first 12 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're handled really interestingly well because they're blatant but they're filmed in such a way that they aren't, they don't make you turn off watching the movie. Right. They're, they're not, um, they're not really pornographic. Very, they're not pornographic. And um, they're <laughs> even like, yeah, it's, they're really, really well done. And I mean, it, it seems strange to say they're done with sensitivity, but they kind of are. And I think that a lot of that is because of, um, you know, the lead's performance. You know, and her facial expressions. But was there anything that you didn't like about the in this uh, cultography's book on Ms. Forty Five? Um, well, I thought that um, the 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 reading of Thana's downfall as being her inability to see past the gender binary. I thought that was fascinating. I I don't know that that's the and, and I'm not saying it's presented as though it's the only reading, but I don't know if it's really that like simple. Um, um, I guess I see a way where you know you can um, 
it can be intersectional and inclusive, but still um, allow her to mm. get away with it. Like it, it almost seems like the author is saying that her downfall is inevitable. Um, and maybe that's true, but I don't know if the reason for the downfall is something I entirely yeah. agree with. And that, that doesn't make me dislike yeah. the book yeah. though. Um, it's just, it's just interesting that I, I feel like I diverge with the author yeah. a little bit on that front, even though like I, I am not an essentialist feminist at all. Um, but yeah, like I just sort of see it as maybe uh, a little more complicated. And I, I don't, I don't know that she reads the stabbing as, um, as deeply as I would yeah, have liked, yeah. you know? So it's like not, okay. So maybe Thana is like short circuiting because she sees a man in a wedding dress and that like kind of makes her hesitate. And then her coworker who is kind of dressed in this gender bendy, um, but still, you know, sexy um, kind of tuxedo outfit uh, gives her time to get up behind her with the gun at cock yeah. point and stab her in the back. And it's like, okay, the reading of that, according to this author, is that like, um, yeah, like her failure to see past the binary is what you know like results in her death. But it's like, but what about this woman who is using an implement, uh, an yeah. implement of yeah, like, it, and that's not really discussed, I guess. And, it, and, and, it, and it kind of surprises me that it is not discussed, considering how in depth and detailed most of her analysis of the film is. But, but yeah, um, so um, but there, there wasn't really anything I, I, I disliked, but there were things that I, I maybe disagree with. Yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us before we sign up? Um, well, I maybe wanted to say just one last thing about how I think the film kind of speaks a coded language. Um, it sort of speaks a language only uh, mm. victims and survivors and those those who have been more generally just silenced, oppressed, or exploited. Mm. Um, those who have felt afraid or disallowed to use or even develop their own voices. Um, those who have never really benefited from capitalist patriarchal society. Like, I think in some ways it speaks a language that only people who fall into those categories can understand, or it speaks, a it, it, it has a different mm. level of meaning. Um, you know, others, others might intellectually understand it, they might get it, um, but only those who have lived some version of Thana or what she represents um, and have been impacted by what she fights against, I think can feel the full force of the impact. Um, and especially, especially of um, Zoe Loon's well said. performance. Well, said. Um, well, thank you, Kim, yeah. for uh, talking to us about this great book, uh, this cultography's book on um, Ms. 45, the 1981 Abel Ferrara film written by Alexandra Heller Nicholas and published by Wallflower Press as part of their cultography series. We'll put links to all of these things that we're talking about, including the books, the series, the movie, the draft house film, and maybe the uh, uh, soundtrack if we can get it, plus the links to Kim's works and, and uh, some of my stuff. 
We'll put that in the uh, long show notes. Thanks for being a part of the show, Kim. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again soon. Thank you so much. I would love to. All right. See ya. See ya. I'd like to welcome the second of my two guests to this episode of Paperback Show, Cody Goodfellow. He's written eight novels and five collections of short stories and edits the hyper pulp zine Forbidden Futures. His writing has been favored with three Wonderland Book Awards for excellence in bizarro fiction. His comic work has appeared in Mystery Meat, Dark Horse Creepy, Slow Death Zero, and as an actor, he has appeared in numerous TV shows, videos by Anthrax and Beck, and a Days in commercial. He lives, in quotations, in San Diego, California. You were uh, last uh, on the show with Kim on our sex novels episode, and you did a great job performing your uh, scene from Ori Hits Wild Lover. Thanks for being on the show again. Cody. Thank you. It's a pleasure and a privilege. I'm glad to be here, Ricky. We're going to be discussing uh, your choice in the cultography series, the Wildflower Press series on individual cult films. We'll be discussing the idea of the cult film, why uh, they chose their, you chose your particular film, and how well the book uh, covered the film. Um, I want to read quickly on the back of the um, cultography's uh, Danger Diabolic, which is written by Leon Hunt. He says, Danger Diabolic is adapted from a comic that has been a social phenomenon in Italy for 50 years. It features a masked criminal, part Fantomas, part James Bond, and his elegant companion, Eva Kant. It reinvents the character as a counterculture prankster and places him in a luxurious and futuristic underground hideout and Ava in a series of unforgettable outfits. A commercial disappointment on its original release, its reputation has grown along with that of its director, Mario Baba, the quintessential cult auteur. This volume traces its production and initial reception and considers its cult afterlife as both a pop art classic and a campy bad film. Do you think this book does that? I, oh, I, I think it, I, it abundantly covers it. It, it first approaches it, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Hunt uh, talks about his first experience with, uh, with the film. And so it, it comes in as a, as a cult experience, something he had to seek out. And uh, he first mm. saw it on television, but it was, of course, a, an expurgated cut. Uh, and then saw it in a triple feature uh, with Barbarella and uh, the 1966 Batman film. Uh, oh my God! Uh, wouldn't you like to have been there to watch that triple? Right, feature? that's a per perfectly contextualizes it. He he only laments that it it sh really uh, sh should have included Modesty Blaze, uh, <laughs> but it's so of a piece of that kind of 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 kicky pop art heroes uh that uh defined that era and uh made it something i i, I think it, it's kind of an epitome of cult film and i and i think he in discussing it he is equally he, he lends equal weight to academics and film critics people like uh tim lewis or uh or tim lucas pardon me or stephen Bissett uh with uh internet commentators and and so seeing seeing uh you know, people who wrote doctoral theses, theses on cinema uh weighed equally along with uh, people just like fizzgig 69 and grand ad Admiral Fong uh, <laughs> is, is kind of hilarious, and and it shows that he really understands that that milieu and doesn't uh, doesn't have any illusions about what what makes it something special and fantastic. 
Why did you choose this book amongst all the others in the cultography series? Well, I'll tell you, there there were a number of films that are, are, are far nearer and dearer to my heart in that series, but that I'd already, like in the case of Blade Runner, I think Paul Salmon's uh, book on it uh, is is kind of the last word. And there were films that I that I loved more like They Live or Evil Dead that I was kind of hesitant to visit on a critical, uh, put on it onto a critical slab because it can be frustrating if, if you really viscerally love something to hear somebody else uh, riff on it. And so Danger, Danger Diabolic uh, jumped out to me as a film that I wanted to understand more because its appeal is kind of this ephemeral ghost around the film itself. And even people who love the, the character or love the style or will bring up Ennio Morricone's music and stuff kind of have to make excuses for it as a film. Um, it's funny, we were talking about the, the rise of, of trash cinema criticism, but uh, he very early on cites an essay by Umberto Eco uh, mm, from mm. 1984 about what defines cult film and, and, and its appeal. And I think Umberto Eco uh, hits, the, hits it with William Tell-like accuracy that it needs to be, to, in order for something to be a cult film and an object of obsession like that, it kind of needs to be rickety and more dreamlike in a way that if it has a really coherent narrative, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be less beloved because if it's something you can break up and reassemble or, or if it's a collection of moments um, or if it provides what Grail Marcus called a, a new way to walk and a new way to talk, hmm. then, then it's something that, that hits you and you can rewatch it over and over again. And the very fact that it's so weak as a narrative is part of what makes it so strong. And right. the, first, the first time that I saw it, I was, I was on, a, on a tear just uh, absorbing all the giallos and obscure spaghetti westerns uh, that I could. And I had also you know, discovered uh, uh, Phantomas and Dr. Mabuse through right. you know, the... The, uh, the original Phantomas books, uh, which were a, although they were, you know, very much popular trash at the time, became kind of a watchword and an icon for the surrealists and the, and the Dada movement. Yes, yes. Um, and and uh, Mabuse, of, of course, in Fritz Lang's uh, film incarnation. But like I, so I, I tracked down Danger Diabolic and the uh, 1964 Phantomas films, and I, by comparison, they suffered, and I kind of I kind of forgot about them because they both felt kind of frivolous and slight. What I was really attracted to about like Mabuza or Phantomas uh, was how dark they are and how they manage the juggling act of keeping the central mainspring of all of the plot off uh, off off camera, or or you never know who he is. One somebody in the plot in in the plot. Uh, is secretly Phantomos until he removes his disguise once he's gone and it's too late to stop him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it was a real pleasure to revisit Danger Diabolic and see it on its own terms and see and, and love the kind of things that I loved about it. And also in reading the book, uh, I, I found a lot of getting me to think about it more critically. I found antecedents that I, that I did really like, um, one film that I loved as a child that reminds me so much of this one is uh, the abominable Dr. Fives. Oh yeah. Uh, by Vin with Vincent Price. And it, and it yeah. has so many parallels in that the anti-hero is running the show, but not only that you have these moments, these pauses in the story where you are luxuriating with him and his, and his accomplice Volnavia in this art deco jazz, yes. you know, uh, uh, jazz dungeon and really just, 
just goofing on the style and the aesthetic yeah. style was a big deal. Her outfits were really great in fives. Right. Right. And it Paris has such a, such a, so many parallels with, uh, uh, with Ava Kant, uh, in, in the film in that Ava's kind of a cipher and, and sort of a sphinx, but, but she is also the driver of a lot of the plot. Mm. You know? mm. uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was a fantastic experience to, to, dig into it and understand why it's uh right. why it's fantastic and it, and it allowed me to at a visceral level to love it all over again so did the book do what you wanted it to do which was learn more about it how it was made and the meanings and levels of uh, meaning in the film yes I, I i mean of course because it it is uh this the book came out in 2018 and the you know about a so 50th anniversary of the film's release and so they he was able to bring you archived quotes from the uh uh from people involved of course there's there almost nobody around to do uh interviews on it now but the the scope of it and the way that it was it was what you'd hope you know uh, a, a monograph would do and that it 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 walks you through the 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 plot and uh, for about the first third and then discusses you know critically the the aesthetics set design the, the role of costumes and music and everything and then talks about its its place in popular culture for the last third and and I, I thought that was an excellent balanced approach i love the fact that um since so much of cult fandom is gendered toward men yes. i love the fact that danger diabolic is a uh, definitely a cult film that allows women to participate in the appreciation right? of it as a cult film right and because i think all three of the films that we are and books that we're talking about here the faster pussycat kill kill danger diabolic and miss 45 feature uh, stylish and interesting female performances strong yes. female performances right all the way through right and and yeah ava's probably the 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 most passive or the most uh, uh compared to compared to the other two which yeah that's that's a skewed ass curve though but uh she's still very she's, much she's she's occupiable uh, she's she's, get, she's still pretty direct and an interesting character yes and his his love <laughs> for her and her her own appetites what's what's amazing is that it, it is such a great cult date film in that their their love for each other is what is what drives them as as characters that's great. and that's a good and getting, comment and getting to see them getting to see them pull off these capers together and seeing that that's an aspect of uh there's no conflict between them neither one of them wants to reform or go straight or anything else <laughs> like that and so getting to see not just uh not just an anti-hero but but uh an anti-hero couple who are totally in in on this and uh, and and up for whatever yeah. uh, and validating each other's badness. Is, and she looks is so rad. great all the way through it. And she's so, even though she's really um, sexy with uh, John mm -hmm. Philip Law, their sex scenes are great. Yes. You can still see the traces of saliva on her mouth at some certain mm -hmm. points. There's yeah. certain coldness yeah. to, to her performance, which I think is just marvelous. Yes. Sadly, right. I think that Wildflower Press, um, which is part of Columbia University Press now, it's an imprint. Yes. They do acquire, they do a shortcuts, which is a series of uh, books on um, 
particular topics like genre films, westerns, women's films, things like that. Right. Do you do uh, 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 films of studies like Soderbergh, uh, Bellatar, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, not Jodorowsky, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg, a whole bunch of others. Right. And that's Cultography series. I think um, it's run for about eight years now, but I think the the last one was Flaming Creatures, mm-hmm. that wonderful underground film. I don't think they're going to be publishing anymore. That's I, a damn shame. I tried really hard to get a hold of the editor, but there's just wall after wall that's put up. You can't get to them. I couldn't get any information on it. There's some hints at it, but I, I don't think it's going to continue. So Right. It's too bad. But, you know, there are other... Um, there's a real nice... We're in a time in which we can get film guides. In a previous first half of this podcast, we talked about some of the history of Penguin setting up the first individual nonfiction studies of various topics. And there's there are other people to which we're going to list in our notes that are, are talking about cult films. And so just check our notes in the section and we'll put links to all of these. And I'll see if I can't resolve whether they're going to continue or not. Did you have any uh, last thoughts or ideas that you wanted to share with us before we close? Um, well, yeah, if, if they were doing more, uh, I, I would love to see um, Repo Man um, and my probably my all time favorite cult film. The one I recommend the most and rewatch the most would be Perdita Durango, uh, Alex De La Iglesias' film that uh and and that's like a layer cake of of fascination because alex cox appears in it uh you you know one of my favorite cult film directors in my favorite cult film um or or straight to hell by alex cox which is a a a disaster of a film and and that's another one of my favorite cult films because it's it's an unmitigated disaster of a film but it's also just a phenomenal movie because it's so fun to watch uh watch these people uh suffer through it um, but, uh, yeah, I, my thought that I, uh, that I, that I loved about the, about this one and that I wish would kind of resurge. And I, I think some filmmakers are down with it, but generally movies as, as Hollywood makes them are, are, have never been further away from this mindset. Cause it's one of the things that absent transgression, absent violence and sex that you couldn't, uh, couldn't show, uh, on a, uh, on a mainstream, uh, first run movie theater screen. It's, it's that idea of breaking up the narrative and making it into a dreamlike moments Re- because all film is a dream and if it tries to be mistaken for waking experience I, I i think it becomes kind of a chore and i the films that we really love versus the films that we like uh it, it it's that it's that it's a dream that you can you can you want to inhabit over and over again and i, I think a, i think a coherent narrative kind of works against that and i i'm not sure how how intentional how much of a, 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 a creature of intention versus expediency that was but diabolic uh, one of its one of its greatest traits above and beyond just that 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 joie de vivre and the spring it puts in your step or the style is the way that it reminds us that that yeah. cinema is is a dream and that it's a, a thing that you inhabit. I agree with that. In fact, I'd just like I'd like to add that I think style is the mm-hmm. uh, one of the f- essential features of cult films. All three films, uh, Faster Pussycat, Miss 45, and Danger Diabolic have unique and uh, clear styles that come out of the making of the experience of making the film, the directors, the contributors like uh, 
um, music uh, composers, uh, actors, the place that it's shot. They yes. all have a signature style that, that puts you in a dreamlike state that other films can't even come close to. And how. Yeah. Mm, yes. Mm, mm, yes. Yep. That certainly is true with Danger Diabolic. Yes. Yeah. And uh, more than yeah, as 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 a as a superhero film, as a as a uh, as a crime film, as a spy film, yeah, it's it, it's barely it's barely yep. worth a worth a notation. But as a as a style and as an attitude and as a as a as a statement of of style. I, I think it's uh, it, it, it's criminally underrated. Yeah, I agree. So yeah. what, what, listeners, what is your favorite cult film? What would you like to see uh, that we haven't even touched on here? What do you think cultographies should cover? Or if they're not around another company, let us know on our notes section. I'll definitely uh, share that in the future. We want to hear from you. Just go to paperbackshow.com. You'll get uh, the notes for this film and also links to Cody's uh, uh, recent works and uh, a short biography and Kim's, uh, who's got Dear Ted coming out. When is that coming out, Kim? Uh, it comes out in June. Uh, official release date is June 14th. Yep, can't wait for that. So um, thank you both for being on the show and sharing your thoughts about the photography paperback series and your ideas about these fantastic films i love your choices and um thanks thanks a lot for being yeah. on the show thank you thank you ricky see ya